G'day, welcome to Radio Notes. Tillman Robinson, our feature guest. Recorded during the Melbourne tour of 2018, released for the first time today. Tillman mid-May 2019 was announced as an artistic associate for the Speak Percussion. Currently seeking funds for a project they're part of, Kieran Welsh, A Missing Moon, with a week to go on that at the time of the episode's release. Link in the show notes for deets. You'll hear us chat about a new album to date believed still to be on the way. Before then, let's dive in the box. Washington, from an album believed to be called Achilles Heart, comes Dirty Churches, produced by Dave Hammer, with an aside, the PR restating their belief recent remixes have been their first. Still blind, it appears, to the remix No Device did of the cut cement from 2010. This is a deep synth pop number out now. That's country bro Toby Keith dropping 59 names of the genre they rest. Not much to say on it except part of a greatest hits collection. While still in country, Abby Christo presents Kiss Me Into Monday from New Zealand and one half of May Valley, cut out through Sony's The Orchid. All I Want is the debut single for The Sunfruits, where they head back to the 70s pop era. One more, currently top of my inbox, Cassidy Ray and more. The singer's journey is said to have started in the Australian Girls Choir, performing in front of big names and a pope too. Now to hear from our feature guest. Tillman Robinson is a composer, sound designer and producer who creates electroacoustic music. Their latest, Dear Heart, was mostly written and recorded at Greenhouse Studios in Reykjavik, Iceland, providing a landscape that surely influenced the sounds in the grooves of their release. As part of the Radio Notes Melbourne tour, Tillman invited us into the new studio space, still being transformed and where future experiments were being created for this chat. Pleasure to be inside your new space. Let's explain where we are. At my new studio in Fairfield in Melbourne. As you saw on the way in, it's definitely in a state of construction, as is the room that we're currently in. The whole building used to be an old... I'm still trying to find the gender-neutral term for this, but seamstress place. So like clothes-making factory, essentially, with a huge factory floor underneath us. Where we're sitting right now used to be really long tables of, you know, various, mm-hmm. with various sewing machines and these kind of things. So if we go by the fact that an actress can be an actor... Would a not seam store? A seamer? A seamer? Yeah. I, I, the, only, the only male version I could think of was Taylor, but that doesn't seem right either. If you were a male seamstress. This was somewhere that made shirts, pants. Exactly. The team that is currently building this up had already a recording studio behind this wall. In 2014, I was the recipient of a commission to write a piece for, the, for PBS. Funnily enough, we actually mixed it down in the studio. There's a, there's a control room elsewhere that we mixed it down in, which was pretty funny to think about now. But then they slowly took over the rest of the building. Firstly, this half of the, of the top floor that we're on now, and then the entire bottom floor, which is a factory floor. So they're slowly building them into a series of studios and workspaces. So this very much is a home of audio? It is now, yeah. No longer clothing, but audio. As we walk through, there's some very old audio equipment that may mm. have come from the old studio from 2014. I believe that the the person in, in you know in charge of building this place up is just a bit of a 
a collector, as it were. So things sort of seem to find their way here, and then eventually he comes, he fixes them up. It's all very DIY, which I think is really lovely, actually. Within this space that we're in, what is yours? What what are the proactive tools that would be yours? The the Moog, uh, audio interfaces, tape machines, a series of compressors, speakers, some synthesizers. There's a bunch of stuff that isn't actually set up yet, but a whole series of guitar pedals these kind of little audio toys that become part of the palette. The main mixer itself looks like right. it's a classic. Actually, it's a bit deceptive. It's a relatively new, as in by new I mean the past, it was made maybe 15 years ago by a company called TL Audio who are defunct now, unfortunately, an English company. But they, um, they made this series of essentially uh, tube mixers, so it's got all tubes inside it, that also had digital capabilities. So this has, unfortunately, this unit doesn't, but there is a card that you can get that I'm really chasing that has an ADAT in-out, so I can just plug it straight into my audio interface and use the tube preamps, which which would be very handy. Is this a space, Tillman, that you would perceive yourself spending days upon weeks in in the near future? Uh, Yeah, definitely. For the past few years, I've kind of been playing musical chairs, as it were, with studios, so I first had a space above a wonderful bar called Long Play, which is in Fitzroy North, which was really great. They have performance space out the back that doubles as a cinema. Come sort of 7 or 8 p.m., there'd be bands playing down there and I'd have to sort of get out of there, which actually was fine because you got to stop sometime. Otherwise. Did it also give you a sense of community as well, that particularly oh, yeah. other genres of music other than yourself? Well, not so much that space because that was usually just bands coming to play and I'd hear them start warming up and I'd get out of there. Although a lot of colleagues and friends of mine do perform there. But I think this place will probably be more like that. Eventually, and this will happen quite quickly, I think, we'll lay cable into the live room next door, which is huge, like just, you know, half the warehouse in size. And there's also a couple of other smaller uh, rehearsal rooms that they rent out that I'm um, in discussions with turning them into live rooms. Can we talk about Tillman and his experience with the live music? Because you Mm. have recorded some live music in Mm. your time. and Mm. Is there still a passion for that, or is that the good old days? Do you mean live music in terms of me performing? Yes. And performing with ensembles? Mm. Is there still a passion for that? I guess so, yeah. Later this year, I'm running a commission for the Australian Art Orchestra. So that'll be, and that's premiering here and then going to the London Jazz Festival and then to Poland. And that's very much a return to that, I think, from a relatively long hiatus. Yeah, a couple of year hiatus of writing for an established ensemble, you know, writing a commission for an established ensemble. We're going to get to your solo work, which is very crucial for this space and what you're doing, the solitude that comes with that. But can we stay on the ensemble just for a little while? Of course, yeah. When did that all start for you? I've played in ensembles all my life, since I was a, a kid. I used to play trombone up until just a couple of years ago when I set it aside. Listeners might be able to hear the smile in my voice. Is that a stigma thing? About the trombone? Yeah, because one does not blow their own trombone. Yeah, one blows their own trumpet. Mm. Uh, no, I think it's an amazing instrument. In fact, I miss it from time to time. What I don't miss is what I perceived to be the shackles of it in terms of expressing myself creatively. When I was younger, I played in 
symphony orchestras touring. I studied the trombone both classically and from a jazz point of view. And I've had some incredible experiences with the instrument in terms of traveling the world, in terms of performing with people I would otherwise never have had the chance to perform with, um, making contacts. But it was never my main mode of creative expression. And often, coming back to the ensemble thing, I felt most at home playing in a large ensemble on my instrument, but I never felt truly comfortable being a solo voice within that context, with that being my mode of expression. So when I moved to more towards composition and organizing sound in that fashion, originally for the ensembles that I was playing in, uh, that became a better vehicle for my creativity. And then eventually that just took over. And that was a long process. At what age was that? At what age did it take over? The solo, yeah. I mean, it's hard to, you know, there is transitory periods Mm. of that time. But I guess the first time that I really felt like major compositional work was coming out with me, I was 26, Mm. I think. And I just received a commission to write what ended up becoming my first album, Network of Lines. But that was originally conceived as a performance, as an, an hour-long concert piece. At the age of 26, heading in to 27, mm. did you get a sense there were things you wanted to say through your music for which the solo was the only way of saying it? Mm. It's an interesting question. I don't, uh, I don't know. I don't think that I ever felt... And maybe not even until now have ever felt a kind of burning push to say something, to say something meaningful. I don't, I don't think that I do it in order to fly my own flag and say, say to everyone, hey, look at this thing that's really important. Maybe until my new record comes out, which is another conversation. But I do think that there that there's just been something that I want, I just want to express in a way that is not necessarily in words. Um, and that comes out through me musically. I mean, it comes out of people in very different ways. And some people it comes out in rage, in anger, in the way that people are, you know, have road rage or experience bouts of those kind of aggressive tendencies or melancholic tendencies or things like this. And well, me, tell it's me, musical. how much of... The creative composition at that stage, maybe even now, mm. and we'll get to the new record later, is about controlling those vibes, those feelings, those those tensions within. I, th- I think it's the opposite of control. Mm. I think that there is there is something to be said for loosing, for relinquishing control and allowing things to exist in their own temporal space. I would add, though, that that is probably more likely to be the outcome when I'm writing for an ensemble of other musicians than when I'm working on an album of my own in the studio. Because obviously when you're writing in the studio and you're writing with largely electronic instruments or very meticulous recordings that you can edit to the nth detail, you have a huge amount of control, Mm. probably too much, to be honest. Mm. 
when you're writing for a series of incredible improvisers for live performance, like I will be later this year or like I did with Network of Lions, yeah. you actually... Well, obviously, you have to give over that control to the musician at some point, but choosing the right musician becomes an aspect of the compositional process. You're talking about writing improvisation now. Mm. Initially, people would think improvisation is just that. It's, it's improvising. You're making stuff up. Yeah. But talk to us about the compositional elements of improvisation. I, I can only talk from my own perspective. I, I don't profess to really know, you know, have the, the PhD in the history of improvisation. From a compositional point of view, I think improvisation is very... Uh, improvisation as a compositional element stems from the language of the person that is improvising. And what I mean by language, I mean the tonal palette that they create. And that's defined by many different things. Usually who they are as a person is number one. But also the instrument that they play, you know, their musical history on that instrument, all of these kind of things. When you're writing for improvisers, you have to take into account these aspects of it. And so I will write a piece of music that has a section in it amongst many notes of written things and, you know, what people might think is pretty classic composition, writing dots on the page. But I might have a section for an improviser to do whatever they like within a framework that I give them. And then that is a very... It's a very conscious choice to let that person loose on that part of the music because I know that what they will create through their knowledge of their instrument or their knowledge of music in general will complement the composition at that stage. There seems, listening to what you're saying there, an intimate knowledge of whatever that language is. Yes. Because it, yeah. music is a language, but mm. knowing the language which that musician speaks yeah. and in the way of fluency, I guess, that they speak it. Yeah, indeed, and that comes from listening to the musician. If I'm working with a, with a musician, I'll go and see them play, probably quite a few times. Mm. If they're not playing too many gigs at that point in time, I'll listen to recordings or I'll go and meet with them and, like we're doing now, sit down and they can show me their, the latest tricks that they've been doing or something. And it makes it a bit reductionist, but mm. you know, show me what they do on the instrument. And then I can incorporate that both into the dot writing that I'm doing, the note writing, mm. and into how I can let them loose on the piece. The issue of trust when it comes mm. to that yeah, relationship. It's a big one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How do you navigate that level of trust? Work with the people that you trust. You know, there, there's no other way around it, really. And I, I think what's interesting with this line of thought is you think about, from a classical point of view, I'm talking classical music now, there are always very diff disparate sort of chamber pieces of music that have very strange instrumentation. So you have your classic sort of chamber groups in inverted commas like the string quartet, the piano trio, these kind of groups. But then you'll have like, or the, the wind quintet, then, then sometimes you'll have composers writing for like, you know, a viola, a, a flute and a harp or, you know, just these very disparate groups. And... For years, I was kind of thinking, why would you choose that group of instruments? That seems quite strange to me. And then, of course, you realize they're writing for their friends. They're writing for the people that they trust. And often that is the way that composers will do it. Mm. They, you know, their, their friend says, hey, I really like your work. Can you write me a piece? And you go, sure, because you trust that person. You know, and you trust their musicianship. You trust them implicitly. 
And it goes both ways. I might ask people to, to play on my music and they're usually people whose musicianship I trust and also who I trust as people. So that becomes quite important. So you could have a class of 30, but there mm. was only four or five that you would trust, but they only play these instruments. Mm. Ergo, those instruments become the instrumentation. Yeah. Mm. And that yeah. becomes the piece and you make that work yeah. for the outcome. Absolutely. Zania Colic, you've worked with her? I've worked with her. She played on one of the earliest iterations of my first record, Network of Lines. What's your vibe about Zany and the work that she does? I think she's incredible. I mean, recently I've been admiring her progress as a performer and as a, as a musician from afar. Mm. Um, I haven't really caught up with her in a while, but she used to work with my sister, who's a great cellist. They played together a lot. And actually, Mel Robinson, my sister, was the person who put me on to Zanny. I think she's what's become quite beautiful to see is the the dedication and the fastidiousness that she's doing in putting together new projects that are championing uh, women, women in the arts and or, or whomever. Like there, there is a real like, I guess, social consciousness and a drive to, you know, lift everyone up in that sense, which I think is really beautiful. That gives us a chance now to move back to you and your work. Mm. And so that's the ensemble work. Mm. Then the solo work came about. Yeah. I mean, I don't really see a distinction between the ensemble work or the solo work. It's all my output, essentially. I see that difference because I perceive it as being long hours in a studio Mm. compared to reaching out to other performers for them to do your work. Right. I think that the the link that you're missing there is that in the composition of the work for the ensemble, there's still many hours spent in the studio. Of course. The unfortunate downside of being a, a composer, I guess, is that you do spend a lot of time alone mm. and you have to get used to that. And often that's, that can become part of the process in a really beautiful way and make you ask questions of yourself and hopefully answer questions of yourself as a person. But I know a lot of people that don't like that. A lot of crossover between the studio, in, inver- in inverted commas, work and the ensemble work in that... Both require a huge amount of preparation in this space now on your own and making that happen. If we look at the solo now, mm. this is a more, and particularly on every future releases, this is very much a personalised input. This is mm. having your voice instead of giving the voice to other musicians. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that, but you're probably right. Yeah. In taking sort of complete control of the sonic world that I'm creating, maybe it is more mine than it is others. Yeah, I, I, I wonder if that's true. That's something to think about. By the time this is released, you'll be very much focused on that next solo album, mm. which I'm interested, very much, in fact, interested in hearing some insights about before mm. it's out, of course. But what is the difference between that first and second record? What's happened between the two? Ah. Well, the first... Well, it's essentially, it's my second record, actually, Dear Heart. It was the first one, the mm. first sort of studio album that I made. Yeah. That was made very much while on the road around the world. I wrote a lot of it in Canada when I was in residency at the Banff Centre and in Iceland when I was there and in rural Bavaria and just all these disparate places. And it was it was kind of... DIY in that I recorded things all over the world and then did a, a, a lot of work actually at the studio in Iceland called Greenhouse. Um, and I think the difference between the two is that this one has all been made here in Melbourne. 
So the difference between Dear Heart yeah. and this new record is yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's putting it from a practical point of view. I think there's definitely um, sonic and uh, conceptual differences too, which I'll get to. But there's something to be said about sort of feeling a bit more grounded, even if I haven't been in the same studio the whole time, right. in creating work in one space, working with musicians that I know and trust yeah. that live here. Rather than hiring session musicians, you know, these are the, the friends, the colleagues that I was talking about trusting earlier that I can work with on a more one-on-one basis before just going in and booking a session for X thousand Icelandic kroner, you know, which allowed a certain amount of freedom and creative process that wasn't on the other. What did you get from the residencies like the Banner for Residency, for example? Mm. Time. Time and freedom. I think what's not to be underestimated for people in my position is that you spend, you need to spend a lot of time uninterrupted on your own making this stuff. Mm. And, you know, obviously life gets in the way. So if you're in your home city, you're more likely to be asked for, to do work. Obviously friends are around, right? You want to go hang out with your friends. But if you're sitting in a cabin in the Rocky Mountains and there's no one else around, then... It becomes quite a beautiful place of solitude where you can make these things. And actually, I'm about to take off to Europe next week on a tour with a group from from Melbourne. And then after that, I'm going to spend a week again in rural Bavaria, just sequestered writing this piece for the art orchestra. So it's it's about finding time, really, to really dive into the work that you're doing. When and how did you first experience solitude as a good thing? Um, I feel like I should be lying down on a couch now. (laughs) Probably at the Banff Centre. I did a two and a half month residency there in the winter, their winter of 2013. All right, so November, December-ish. I guess it was, yeah, October into early December. So probably, yeah, late late fall, late autumn. But of course we were snowed in quite quickly. And it was minus 36. It's pretty de- debilitating. Yeah, that's minus 36 in Bedford, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but what was beautiful about that, and this is actually where a large chunk of Deerheart first came about, definitely conceptually, and two of the compositions were written there, was, yeah, just having this un- uninterrupted time to focus on my own practice and on my own work. And then the difficulty with that is that you start to equate this time of solitude and this time of, you know having that time with being the only way to create your work you know then in order to make dear heart i flew to the other side of the world and and took that time again and coming back to this new record it's you know this has all been made here in fits and starts of creative time essentially which has been a change in process but it's probably more likely that that will be the way that i'll make records from now on so it's actually good that I'm making it that way. You're very much on the edge of the seat and rightly so to share some insight into the new record and mm. I'm very much happy to take that on board. Right. Even if this goes out after it's been released mm. it at least is Oh no, I can right. tell you about it. I mean, I'm not, not shy about that. <laughs> uh, just so, letting the listener know this is of uh, the end of June 2018 that yeah. these comments are being made in case right. it changes or is it already in the can? Oh, uh, look, when you leave today, I'll probably do the final bits and pieces and then I'm mixing it when I go to Europe 
next week. Yeah. So the new record is the working title and the probable title is Culture Side, mm-hmm. which is a, a n- sort of newly minted term in literary circles around the end of human culture slash civilization by our own means. So hot topic, yay, pushing the button. Happy but re- stuff, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, to me, it's a cathartic exploration of those themes, really. Okay. And generally in the way that I conceptualize a body of work is I will take a meta concept, which has often been outsourced to literature, but in this case not, take a meta concept and then zoom in on aspects of it. So the meta concept of this was essentially this idea of culture side, which is, I think the definition is, yeah, the end of, of human culture by human means. Mm. So what does that mean? Like, or the end of human civilization? I mean, what are the differences between the words culture and civilization? So they have very different connotations to me so if it's the end of human civilization by human means does that mean the end of human culture no if it's the end of human culture does it mean the end of civilization probably you know but it's exploring sort of aspects of how humanity might meet its own demise and from a sonic so that's kind of a a meta conceptual point of view whether listeners get that from the record that's completely up to them i probably won't hammer that home too much I'll leave it up to people to decide. But from a sonic point of view, there's kind of an extension of some of the sonic ideas I was exploring in Deerheart. In Deerheart, there's a lot of um, sounds that I harvested from my own body, so using stethoscope microphones to record heartbeats or hydrophones to record myself doing mundane things like doing the dishes or doing the you know having a bath or something like that and these became part of the sonic palette and in this in in culture side i kind of with in in keeping with the theme essentially i kind of took that sonic idea to another place which is recording machines that monitor the human body so i spent a really interesting night at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, recording MRI machines, electrocardiograms, these kind of things, and then trying to find a way to make that musical, have a, have a, have a, a an idea of what that sound is when it's monitoring my body or nobody. I mean, I couldn't really get into the MRI machine, but yeah, and then try to weave that into the sonic texture to varying levels of success. Do you get a sense that culture is on the way out? I think I think things are very turbulent at the moment. I think things are changing. I don't know whether that's for the better or the worse. And I think there is a very real threat to our survival as a species. No. Scratch that. I don't think there's a very real threat to our survival as a species. I think that there's a very real threat to the survival of the current form of civilization whether it's in my lifetime or in a lifetime soon soon after, I think there'll be a very big shift in how we live and whether or not the planet will be able to sustain how we live our lives. But, yeah, do I think that there's an end in sight? But Yeah, I do. But, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing in the way that the extinction of the dinosaurs wasn't a good or a bad thing, you know? How does the conversation of this music then play a part? Well, that's a good question. I mean, to, to a certain extent, I feel like uh, I'm shouting into the void a little bit by making it. To a certain extent, I feel like a lot of my listeners potentially share this malaise and this 
kind of feeling of helplessness around those kind of events. Thus, is that some level of comfort they may find in it? Well, yeah, I mean, either comfort or, you know, if people aren't thinking about these things, maybe it's a reason to start thinking about it. But realistically, it's a selfish exercise in allowing myself this cathartic kind of process of exploring these themes and finding a way of of organising my thoughts about it into something as disorganised as my music. During this recording process of this new record that we're Mm. speaking of, did you find some answers within whilst doing it? I don't think I found answers because I don't know if there are any. But I did find solace in thinking about it in the way that I was, which was taking it very much from the academic side of my brain that loves to uh, obsess about politics and obsess about, you know, reading aspects of this and reading literature about it and allowed me to give it over, essentially, to the artistic side of myself, which is... Uh, not as concerned with the minutiae and more about how I feel about it as a whole. This travel that you've done, what's that done for your sense of politic? Well, the interesting thing about that and Dearheart is that some of, the, some of Dearheart was written at that point when there was a huge amount of refugees coming into Germany, where I was at the time, and in particular into Munich on trains in 2015. Late in 2015, there was train after train of refugees coming into Munich welcomed with open arms you know there were people at the train stations with bags of food and these kind of things to welcome the refugees from their plight in Syria and how much that has changed you know even within Germany which is one of the more um, liberal leaning democracies I think as far as that is concerned as far as refugees are concerned um, there's been a huge wave of the nationalism that goes against this and I think it was interesting that that was such a timely and informative time to be at that place in the world. There's a piece on Dearheart called Orison that I originally wrote at exactly that time and was influenced by that, I think, that then became, I guess, the germination of this project. So back to the differentiation between the two releases, Dearheart and the new release. Mm. What are those differences? Because I haven't obviously had the pleasure of listening to it yet. Nah. But you never will. Shall never be released. <laughs> no, yeah. Oh, no, you're saying we're going to die tomorrow. Thank you, I forgot. It's my time. We're all going to die tomorrow. Oh, well, I'll, I'll go first. <laughs> I'll take one for the team. <laughs> I'll tell you what it feels like. <laughs> There's a different palette, though, isn't there? Yeah, I, I think that... And the subject matter leaned itself towards that as well. My compositional practice has been on, like, a slow crawl towards electronic music. But I will make a distinction there that like every single aspect of this record either had its germination on an acoustic synthesizer or is an acoustic recorded sound or was electronic sound that I reamped into a room so it could take on acoustic properties and then has been manipulated and re-recorded. There is definitely a push in my practice towards you know, working with sound in that way. So there, there is a difference between a lot of the more ensemble-driven music that is on Dearheart and Network of Lines and this one. I don't know whether I'll, I'll keep going down this path. I think, as we were talking about earlier, the, um, the 
you know, time spent in studio just sitting here finely tuning an electronic element is getting a little too, I guess, boring. <laughs> I just want to be around musicians again. So maybe the next thing will just be like a string quartet, a series of string quartets that I can get my friends to play or something. I don't know. For the solo work, who's your sounding board? There are numerous people that I send stuff to. Because it's not just yourself, because obviously you'd keep on going, wouldn't you? No, okay. actually. Yeah. But there are... There are I, that's totally... I totally see that in my colleagues, and I can absolutely see why people do that. But I think I've kind of gotten to a point where I'm pretty good at just going, okay, I'm done now. And that's not usually because it is done. <laughs> usually because I just can't be f to listening to it anymore and so the sounding board then becomes what well i send it to other people Mm. and then i go okay it's time now and then i go right we're going to mix and then there might be a couple of changes in the mix but then after that it's finished tillman has an adelaide connection for which i'd like to talk to you about yes that's your record label yeah it was a really kind of organic process i think when i was releasing or about to release dear heart i was kind of thinking about where to put it out and what was happening. Um, And I talked to my friend Luke Howard a lot about that. And I guess he must have contacted Tom and Aaron unbeknownst to me because when I sent them the record eventually, they said, oh, yeah, great, let's go. (laughs) That was actually a really beautiful process. They've been really great in the process of releasing Dear Heart. We haven't really talked about the new record yet, so we'll see what happens there because... I don't know, you know, I, I have a feeling they'll probably just say, great, let's go for it. But it is quite different to what is on the record now. Something new to bring to the table. Yeah, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but we'll see what they say. They're a vinyl label as well, very much. Yeah, vinyl. yeah. Was that on your radar? When oh, we- absolutely. I think that that's, and in fact, I feel like I've probably sold more vinyl than I have CDs, you know, which is inevitable in this day and age. But it says a lot about the people that listen to my music, that there is like an audiophilic quality to people that they want to have, you know, this object and the best possible sonic representation, which I think is in the vinyl and that listening experience. There's someone who's made the art mm. to then know it's being listened to the way it was meant to be listened to. That's an, another whole, convers- not conversation, but an aspect of that comes down to, like, releasing Network of Lines. There was a piece that I wrote, another concert piece that I touched on called Agony of Knowledge that was for the for PBS and the Melbourne International Jazz Festival. But these pieces were intended to be listened to as a 60-minute work, you know. Mm -hmm. And what I think is interesting about that is that nobody's sitting down anymore and listening to a 60-minute work, Mm -hmm. or not many people, on their stereo at home. And neither am I, really, you know. So when I was making Dear Heart and now also with Culture Side, it's like... I have to. I want to think about them as individual compositions of, you know, two to six minutes in length, and condensing all of that thought process into these smaller works, so that people that listen to them digitally can still have an an idea of what each composition is. But obviously, they form a part of a larger whole, which is the album release. So, thinking about how to structure that is part of the composition. In that, even when we were talking about culture side, the meta concept of what culture side is, Mm. is this overarching thought about the entire record. 
And yeah. as you also said regarding culture, so it's up to you still whether or not you'll put the narrative out as openly or leave it up to the record to be understood. Yeah, it's, it's something I probably need to talk about with, you know, whomever, the PR person or something, yeah. is that it, it seems a little on the nose to me to kind of just bang on about this doom and gloom. Yeah, well, Moby did it with his releases. Right, yeah. And there's a, there's a Like few... there was a release and an essay every time. Right, oh, right. For at least a couple of records, there was always an essay. Like the CD, oh. the CD booklet was an essay. I don't think I'd go to that length. No. But it's more about talk, whether talking about it in interviews like this is, is really appropriate or, or constructive to what the music is. Because I really do want people to make to draw their own conclusions from the music. Mm. I think that's one of the most beautiful things is people coming up to me after a show and saying, wow, your music made me think about this and this. And I say, hey, cool. I definitely wasn't thinking about those things when I was writing it, but beautiful. Go for it. But you personally and deeply have some views as well that obviously yeah. are on the record, but also mm. in your daily life as mm. well. How much, Tillman, does that influence your decisions of what the next project or what the next element of music to be written down will be by your your daily opinions and thoughts of the world and what's actually going on. So, right. so this as a concept record, of course, it's in there, it's happening, but mm. from a day-to-day point of view. I think the daily actions are affected in that we all try to live better lives mm. or we all aspire to. In terms of making new work... Uh, I don't know whether this will be a continued point of exploration. I don't. I don't know how helpful it's been. It has been nice to do. I don't know. Obviously, it's not released yet, so I don't know if it's going to have any impact on how people think, or whether people think about it. And I don't know if it's necessarily something that I need to now sit down and really mull over again so the next thing might be i don't know return to literature other parts of my life or the lives of others that i feel like thinking about in as much detail as i've thought about this because it is a lot of thought given to the topic what was that first record for tillman and was it influential on where you are now the first record record that i bought with your own money (laughs) the first record i bought no doubt so the band no doubt from the mid 90s and their album tragic kingdom Around the time that they had that that huge hit single, Don't Speak, banger. Still a fan of Gwen Stefani? <laughs> no, clearly not. I mean, no. Actually, post that album, things got a little weird, I think, with her. There was this whole, like, Harajuku phase where she was, like, she was big in Japan. And there was all these, yeah. That was the first album I bought. The first CD single I ever bought, back when that was a thing, was the theme song to the reboot of the Mission Impossible series. The version that was done by the two people from U2 that you don't know, the drummer and the bass player. Wow, what a time. Mid-90s. Good times. I, I can't really think of definitive albums in terms of shaping what I do now until I get to maybe 10 years ago when I first heard the music coming out of greenhouse um, studios mm. and the, specifically this label bedroom community that um, when I went to Iceland in 2015 I worked for them at that studio and that was a long process of kind of going wow how is this music made and then going there and demystifying it I think that's had a big big impact so you were introduced to the music then went yeah 
yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a, it was kind of a fascination of these four very disparate artists that had very disparate practices, and I kind of wanted to see how they made all this music together that was so different, but used all of the same musicians. Yeah, it was a quite an eye-opening experience. I think that had a a lot of. Um, and continues to have an impact. I mean, I still am in touch with these people and, and work with them to varying degrees. That's where the travel started then? Well, travel has always been a thing. I was, I was born in, in Germany mm. and would go back quite frequently. Well, not really, but uh, uh, from time to time. And then I just had a real travel bug and just wanted to keep going and going. And eventually I found a way to do that and also do work as I continue to, you know. But in terms of the music travel bug? The music travel bug started in 2011, the first time I went to the Banff Centre. Yep. And then when I went to Iceland was yep. in 2015. So it had been, there'd been a couple of longer... Uh, the trips were getting longer and longer, and that one went for most of 2015. Do you see yourself as a Melbourne Australian or just international artist? Hmm. I see myself as an Australian artist because... I am Australian and I want to express aspects of being Australian. I would like to have an international career and I think that there are, you know, I, I am on, hopefully, on the trajectory towards that. But I don't think I'll ever call myself anything other than an Australian artist. Is yeah. there inspirational icons, maybe a Luke Howard, for example? Within others? Australia? Yeah, th- well, that are setting you on your path. Oh, where you want to go. Yeah, I mean, Luke's, Luke's career has been incredible to view as a friend and as a colleague. You know, there's definitely people like Lawrence English, who I absolutely very much admire, and other people like that. I mean, I would say Ben Frost here, but he kind of left Australia maybe, you know, 15 years ago or something. So I think most of his uh, output came when he was already a resident of Iceland. But there, are, like, yeah, there are a lot of Australian artists that I think are really doing incredible work around the world. Now, looking the other way to artists that may be looking up to your good self, mm. how do you take that on board? What's your what's your elements of teach? When somebody comes to me and wants to talk about talk about music or their practice, it's very individual. But I think that the the, the most important thing I try to impart on people that come to me to talk about being a musician is to be magnanimous and to pay it forward. There are an unbelievable amount of people who have helped me to become the musician that I am today without ever having asked for a dollar in return. And so I, I like to pay that forward. And quite frequently, if somebody comes to me and says, you know, emails me out of the blue and says, can I get a lesson or something? I'm going to be in town for two days. Can I have a lesson? I'll say, yeah, of course, and don't charge them a cent. I mean, I know what it's like to do that kind of travel and where you're hard on your sleeve when you come into the room with somebody that you really respect. Does that give you a sense of faith that your new album may not be as bleak as it needs to be? That there is some sort of cultural engagement that society is doing all right like that? Yeah, yeah it's, it's a distinction I haven't drawn. That's, yeah, maybe. Hmm. I think, if, yeah, if there are enough people trying to be as, as helpful as possible, that's definitely the way that I can see a future for... For all of us. What music are you actually listening to right now for Tillman? So not Tillman the composer, and there might be hard to make the difference, but for Tillman the bloke who goes and gets the milk from the shop, that kind mm. of thing. Mm. What are you currently listening to, and why do you think you're listening to it? 
To be honest, I don't listen to a lot of music anymore, which is really unfortunate. I spend all day sitting in here listening to music, and you just want to give your ears a rest. Your own music, mate. Yeah, my own music or other projects I'm working on or... Yeah, sure. Um, if I'm doing front of house sound for an experimental percussion group, yeah. making all these kinds of crazy frequency-driven sounds, the last thing I want to do is go and have to analyse more music in my mind. So I listen to a lot of podcasts. Having said that, stuff that I've been really enjoying recently are some of the releases on Thesis okay. that I've been checking out. Because we want to talk about that as well. So yeah, sure. What is Thesis? Because you do have a work on one of the sides of the vinyl that's been released. Well, it's actually it's actually one whole record that is a collaboration between myself and a cellist and composer from Kansas. So Thesis was conceived by Gregory Euclid, I think that's how you say his name, who was, a, um, who was an artist from Minnesota, famously did the album artwork for the Bonnever, Bonnever album, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, is a multi-platinum album, but that's just a small aspect of his career. He's an incredible artist. He just decided to create this record label and ask people, such as myself, to do a collaboration with another artist that they'd potentially never heard of. And I, I'd heard of Aaron Martin's work before, not in any great detail, but um, I, had, I was aware of his work. This is the person that Gregory paired me with. And so we set about this sort of international collaboration of sending files to and fro and, and making a 10-inch vinyl that will only be released as vinyl with handmade, beautiful artwork by Gregory. And it sort of becomes a series of a set of these kind of collaborations that he releases at any given time. Yeah, it's really special. I think it's going to be really good. How do you describe that collaboration process? You stated there that you knew a little bit of their work, mm. but obviously you got to learn a lot more during the process. Yeah, yeah. I, I think what was interesting about the process is harking back to what we were talking about, about being in the room with people and working with people that you trust implicitly mm. and these kind of things. I had none of that history with Aaron. And, you know, it was email exchanges. We never spoke on the phone or anything like that. So it became a very different process of collaboration. And I'm very happy with the outcome, and it's it was really great to work with him, but it was it, it was definitely a, a way of collaborating that I'm uncomfortable with, which is good to know that I can still make good work with another person without having that comfortable process that I'm in. Yeah. That's a sense of maturity, isn't it? That that you know the work that you can do, and then. Right, yeah, or you, you know, trusting in yourself, I yeah. guess, you know, like trusting in your own facility as a musician and then having that uh, confirmed by being able to make work in whatever way is necessary. You have the confidence as a musician. When did you get that? Um, hmm. Do I have the confidence or the, just confidence? Well, the confidence to be a musician. I mean, I guess I have to. Yeah, right. So I do it now. It's pretty... It can be pretty soul-destroying at times, this business. But I've been a musician in some way or another, a freelance musician in some way or another since I was 16. Mm. So the trust is there because I've been doing it and doing it in many different incarnations for, you know, half my life now. So it's, yeah, it's important to just trust in having been able to do it for so long. And that gives me the, the confidence, in inverted commas, to keep doing it. For you... Do you give yourself limitations in terms of of length? I think you may because you're mm. saying that you're sort of focusing on the six or shorter pieces. 
something that was expressed to me in amongst all the composition lessons that I've had is explore an idea to its logical conclusion and don't mistake the length of a piece for its success. So if you can explore a sonic idea or a compositional idea and express everything that you want to express about it in two and a half minutes, done, great. If it takes you 20 minutes, that's also fine. But what you have to be careful of is not thinking to yourself, okay, here's this musical idea that I'm really into and here's another musical idea that I'm really into and they should be the same piece. Right. So it's going, okay, I recognize these two different musical ideas and they are two different pieces of music. And then when I, when I realized that aspect of music making and composition, I stopped writing long extravagant pieces that I thought were my magnum opus mm. and realized that I could express as much from one musical idea rather than trying to sandwich two, you know, put a square, in, a square peg in a round hole and call it a composition. Tillman, I'm fascinated to know what the next 10 years are like for you because you've yeah. had a very solid last 10 years of mm. performance, composing and, and doing what you do so well. So have you cast the net over the next decade of mm. where you want to be in, in, I guess, what will be 2028? I would hope that I am still writing music. The past 10 years have been a very conscious decision to move away from teaching uh, other employment, playing my instrument now towards writing music. I feel like I'm on a trajectory now with that and I just hope that the next 10 years continue that and I find a way to make it, to continue the um, you know, critical success, continue to create music that I'm proud of. I mean, that's the ultimate goal. And if people like it, great. Then hopefully there can be some kind of financial reward as well at some point. <laughs> Tillman Robinson, absolute pleasure and good luck with your new release. Cheers, it's been a pleasure. Tillman Robinson. Dear Heart, their sophomore record is out through Hobbledehoy Records and they can be found online at tillmanrobinson.com. Future episode guests, including On Diamond, had a chat with Lisa Salvo about the group's debut album. Peter Blackie Black of the Hard-Ons will be along from the archives. And while back there in the deeps of the past, we'll dust off a chat never released before with Felicity Ward. Comedian, cricket tragic and regular on the Guilty Feminist podcast. That's next episode. Who sent what? Inside my head, Kathy Renner's 10-track album has arrived ahead of a planned chat coming up. So wonderful the design and detail in the physical release. I'll save more detail on it when we have that chat. Hopefully you'll hear that in the coming episodes. Off the chats. New in at number one on the singles chart, Sheeran and Bieber's I Don't Care. Clearly the title relates to me, as I've not listened to it yet willingly. Over at the stream single, Lil Nas X holds the top spot. I Don't Care only makes number two there. As for number one Australian single, Exit Sign by the Hilltop Hoods, that Lee Kernigan album I mentioned makes its debut at number three on the charts and on the Australian equivalent number one there. Finally, holding the number one spot on the jazz and blues album, David Campbell's Back in the Swing.
Kate Miller-Heike got nine in Eurovision just last night and those I voted in the federal election got fifth behind the United Australia Party, who were led by a bloke that spent over $60 million and was out of the country, reportedly on holidays, during the lead-up to it. Also last night was the Australian Podcast Awards. The popular vote went to Shameless Podcast. A number of awards were won by the Chat 3 Looks 10 combo of Annabelle Crabb and Lee Sales. And the wonderful Sizzletown got a few as well, including Matt Dower getting the top award for the engineering and sound category. Having watched it live via the YouTubes in my office here in Adelaide, South Australia, they were being held in Sydney, New South Wales. I don't reckon I'll be up to the calibre to win an award next year, but it'd be nice to pop along all the same. That was the Australian Podcast Awards 2019. I'll drop a link where you can find out more about the winners as well as the awards itself. Speaking about podcasting, the Indie Pod Fest is happening very soon and they are in their last days of crowdfunding for that very event. Different people go for different reasons. I never went because um, I thought I had to go. I thought it was a really good idea for me to go because... My first show, I got Best Newcomer at 2008 Melbourne Fringe, got nominated for Best Newcomer at Melbourne Comedy Festival, and I sold out in a lot of places, and, you know, there was a good good word on the street, I suppose. And so, um, yeah, I thought it, would, it was sort of like a, the next logical step, and I, I won some money from the newcomer, so I used that to go overseas with. The second year is, was good to consolidate, but it's also, it's really worth doing two years because... What happens the first year might not necessarily happen the second year, and that's what I found out. So now if I go back, and I think the idea that I would go back is I would want to work in the UK eventually for a stretch of time rather than just go over there for Edinburgh. Felicity Ward from the Archives and now based in the United Kingdom, our special guest next episode. Thanks very much to our feature guest this week, Tillman Robinson. Radionotespodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Merch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. 